Again, please be seated if you're standing. We uh, come to our sermon text this morning, Psalm 139. Please turn with me, if you would, uh, to Psalm 132. 132. Don't turn to Psalm 139 because I won't be there. But Psalm 132. And before we read that together, let's pray together. Our Father, we, uh, we thank you for uh, the message, the good news of the grace of the gospel found in Jesus. And we thank you that that is a message that we can proclaim from the mountaintops. And Father, we pray that you would help us to, to hear it now, even uh, in Psalm 132, uh, but also to meditate on it throughout uh, this season and to share it with those around us that others would come to know uh, the good news of your son. Father, uh, be with us now, pour out your spirit that we would have ears to hear, eyes to see, and minds to grasp, hearts to receive the depth of your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, Psalm 132. A song of Ascents. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephratah. We found it in the field of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord has sworn to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation and her saints with shouts for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. What would you give for you and your family to be safe and happy? We live in a day with much insecurity, and you, you can't get much more ubiquitous insecurity than a global pandemic. And that is taking its toll, right, with rising rates of clinically diagnosed depression. When Deborah and I run in the morning, we often listen to various news podcasts to be at least a little informed of what is going on in the world. And as you can guess, most of the news is bad, whether political or social or medical, right? The news highlights things like death tolls and cyber attacks and scandals. 
What would you give for you and your family to be safe and happy in the midst of so much uncertainty and sadness? Uh, that phrase, safe and happy, by the way, comes from Calvin as he comments on this psalm. This is one of the great promises of our psalm, the safety and happiness of the people of God. Well, I want to spend some time uh, applying Psalm 132 to us this morning. But before I do that, I should probably ask a question, which is, how do we move from Psalm 132 to Illinois in 2020? It's a fair question. I hope you can see, right? We come to a psalm written at least 2,500 years ago. It's a psalm about David and his children and the ark and the temple. What does any of that have to do with us? It's a great question. And so I want us to, to walk through the psalm, and then we'll come back to that question before applying it to ourselves today. The psalmist begins by asking God, to remember David, remember all that David went through, to, to find a place for the Lord. David was committed to God and to God as supreme, right, above all else, and he swore an oath to establish God's presence in the midst of his people. Now, practically, that meant a couple of things. First, it meant finding the Ark of the Covenant, the ark, uh, you may know, was a box in which Moses put the tablets of stone containing the Ten Commandments. It was covered in gold and had a lid called the mercy seat, which had two great golden angels on top. The ark represented God's throne, or, or better, his footstool, the, 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 the footstool, the ottoman of God's throne. You see that in verse 7. And the idea of a footstool implies various things. It, it can be used and is used at times in scripture to talk about placing your enemies under your feet, as in Psalm 110, defeating or conquering them. But here it implies something else, though the rule is not out of the picture. The, the point here is this is the place where heaven touches earth. See, in biblical imagery, heaven is God's throne. The ark is his footstool where his, where his feet rest upon the earth, as it were. Or uh, put differently, right? This is where God's presence was revealed. You know, when, when God gave Moses instructions about building the ark, he said this in Exodus 25, 22. He said, there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Now, there was nothing magical about the ark, right? Despite the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, it, it's just th that this is where God decided to meet with his people. There was only one problem at this point. The ark was missing. Years before David's time, the ark had been taken captive by the Philistines. It escaped. No, really, right? It escaped. Go read 1 Samuel 4, 5, and 6. It's one of my favorite stories in the books of Samuel. Uh, but when it got back to Israel, no one wanted it. It was too dangerous. And so it ended up in a little out-of-the-way town called Kiriath-Jerim, which means literally city of forests kind of like, well, Forreston up in Northern Illinois. And so the ark is in Forreston, but who's ever heard of Forreston? Well, 1 Samuel 7, 2 says, 
from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath Jerim, Barston, a long time past, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Now, it's a little unclear whether people knew where the ark was or not, but it was, it was tucked away and over time forgotten in this little town. Hence, Israel's 20-year lament. And there's only one obscure reference to the ark between this time and David's, and that's in 1 Samuel 14, where perhaps Saul, for a time, brought the ark up from Kiriath-Jerim into battle, but its dominant home was in this little out-of-the-way town. Why so much background about the ark? Well, at least some commentators, as they read Psalm 132, they do so in this way. In verses 2 to 5, David vows to find a place for the Lord. But it could also mean find the place of the Lord, meaning David is vowing to find the ark, the dwelling place of the mighty one of Jacob. And then in verse 6, they hear the news. They're in Ephrathah, another name for David's hometown of Bethlehem. And they hear a rumor that the ark is in the fields of Jaar. Now, Jaar is just the singular of Jerim, like Kiriath Jerim. And so they say in verse 7, well, let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. And they have this great procession to Kiriath Jerim to get the ark. And once they're there, they say, Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Now, now Arise, O Lord, was what Moses used to say uh, when, when he uh, wandered through the wilderness with the ark. Numbers chapter 10, verse 35, uh, it says, Whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And see, David has a plan to house the ark in Jerusalem, his capital city. And so they go to Kiriath-Jerim, they get the ark, and they say, Arise, O Lord, and they pick the ark up and they move it. Now, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Uh, we just read 2 Samuel 6, and we heard about some of those complications. But in the end, the ark does get moved by, by the priests and by the Levites, paying careful attention to God's commandments. And so the ark is then settled in Jerusalem. David has given it a permanent place and soon devises plans for a permanent building, plans that his Solomon would bring about. Now, interestingly, in verses 8 through 10 of our psalm are actually quoted by Solomon when he builds the temple in 2 Chronicles 6, uh, verses 41 and 42. And so verse 10 uh, can actually be seen then as Solomon praying uh, in light of David, his father's faithfulness to you and your ark, now don't turn your face away from me. In other words, David fulfilled his vow. Now you, God, for David's sake, watch over me, David's son, Solomon. And what is God's response? Well, Solomon reminds God of David's vow to God. And now we are reminded of God's vow to David. Verses 11 and 12, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your son keeps my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. God says, I have promised that one of David's sons will sit on his throne forever if only they will keep my covenant. And then verse 13 begins, for or because I have chosen Zion. Uh, Zion is another name for Jerusalem. And it seems God's promise to David is, is 
intermingled or tangled up in God's choosing of Zion. Uh, maybe God had thought Zion needed a king, right, to protect and watch over it. But we see, or, or, or maybe flip that around, right, God, uh, or David, conquered Jerusalem because God had chosen it. But whatever the case, God says he has indeed chosen Jerusalem, and so he will bless her, her poor, her priests, and her saints, and yes, even her king, David. A horn will sprout and flourish, uh, horns representing military might, right? Think, think of a horn's, uh, a ram's horns, which are used for battle. Uh, God has prepared a lamp for his anointed, we're told, a lamp implying an ever-burning light, referring here most likely to David's successor, right? Uh, this is implied in 1 Kings, where we read, Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem. So the idea is, rather than David's royal line being extinguished, it continued to burn bright in his descendants. Uh, his enemies would be clothed with shame, verse 18, the opposite of the priests and the people in verse 16, and David's crown would shine. And all of this imagery of clothing and shouts for joy of a horn and a lamp and a shining crown just shows sort of the glory and the wonder of God's people. Zion would be like one continual festive procession under David's rule and God's blessing. So that, that brings us then to our question, which is, how do we move from Psalm 132 to Illinois in 2020, right? What, what does David and the Ark and Solomon and Zion and this festal procession, what does all of this have to do with you and me? Now, on the one hand, you could say nothing, right? We're not David. We're not David's descendants. We don't worship God at his Ark or in the temple or in Jerusalem. And of course, that's all true enough. But we need to slow down and think about this for a minute, right? When we look at scripture, we, we find God's works, uh, God works in predictable ways, meaning that, that he sets patterns in the Old Testament, which are repeated throughout and fulfilled in the new. So, for example, God raises up leaders in the Old Testament, first judges and then kings who lead and save God's people. And eventually God raises up Jesus, right? The, the great king who leads and saves God's people. Uh, God established a priesthood in the Old Testament to offer sacrifices and in intercede on behalf of the people until eventually he sends Jesus, our great high priest and sacrifice, who offers himself for our sins once for all and intercedes with the Father on our behalf. Uh, God dwells in the midst of his people, first in the Garden of Eden and then in the tabernacle and later the temple. But all of that points forward to God dwelling with us in the person of his son who is called Emmanuel, God with us, who then, of course, Jesus, when he rises from the dead and ascends into heaven, pours out his spirit that he might dwell in us in the church, the new covenant temple dwelling place of God. And you get the point, right? God establishes these official patterns in the old covenant, which are later repeated and ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Well, this psalm teaches us that David established a place for God in the midst of God's people and so brings blessing to God's people as a result. And God, in turn, made promises to David and his offspring. Well, when we get to the New Testament, we read that Jesus is the son of David, right? The, the, the son who is greater than his father, according to Psalm 110, verse 1. 
He comes to do what David did, but in even greater ways than David could ever imagine. And so Jesus comes to establish God's presence in the midst of God's people and so bring blessing. And God, in turn, establishes Jesus' throne as the faithful son of David who will sit on the throne forever. Jesus has established God's presence in the church, and we now benefit from his work under his rule. Which, of course, brings us back again to this psalm. And what we're going to see is, as we think about how this psalm applies to us, right, is that if you want God's presence blessing, look to the Messiah, the son of David. Look to Messiah's faithfulness, look to Messiah's promises, and look to Messiah's presence. That's our, our outline uh, for this morning, uh, that if you want God's presence blessing, look to the Messiah, the son of David. Look to the Messiah's faithfulness, look to Messiah's promises, and look to Messiah's presence. So first, look to Messiah's faithfulness. The, the, the caricature of Christianity, and it is a caricature, is that Christianity is a religion for good people, right? A, a bunch of good people get together on Sunday morning to celebrate how good they are and how much God loves them for being good. Uh, my uncle, before he died, told me that, that he didn't go to church because he didn't feel good enough. And of course, there's something profoundly true and something profoundly mistaken in that sentiment, right? The truth is none of us are good enough. Uh, Psalm 24 says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Now, if we are thoughtful, we always come to the question, well, how clean do my hands have to be and how pure my heart? In other words, how good is good enough? None of us is good enough. Uh, my uncle's sentiment was profoundly true, but it was also profoundly mistaken because the church is not a place for good people. It is a place for grace. The, the psalmist begins by asking God to remember David in verse one. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor. Remember David's promise to establish a place for God among his people. Remember the hardships David went through to make it happen. Notice the psalmist doesn't say, remember my faithfulness. Remember what I endured, what I vowed. No, but remember David. Why would he do that? Well, because the, the kings, right, uh, and especially David, uh, stood for and represented the people of God. David was their head, their leader, and just like today, right, I mean, even in mundane circumstances, right, if a, a CEO of a company uh, commits a crime in his role as CEO, right, the whole company is bound to suffer. But if he does well in his job, the whole company will likely thrive. Or if a president declares war on another country, our whole country is at war. But if he brokers a peace deal, our whole country is at peace. And so it was with David. He, he represented the people. His actions mattered on a grand scale, even before God. And so the psalmist can say in verse 10, for the sake of your servant, David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Meaning for David's sake, don't turn me away. 
not for my sake, not because I've done anything wonderful, but for David's sake, because he was faithful to you and kept his promises. Well, when we come, when we come to our God, what do we say? Uh, we don't come in our name. We don't say, God, look at me. I've been so great. We don't come in David's name. The truth of the matter is David, after all, was a, a flawed person like us. But we come in the name of great David's greater son. We say, for Christ's sake, don't turn me away. Remember the hardships he endured in his humiliation, in his incarnation, in his rejection, in his crucifixion. Remember how Jesus did not rest until he established a place for God in our midst. Remember how Jesus first was that place, right? The ark of God where God met with his people, Emmanuel, God with us. Remember how Jesus then cleansed the people by his blood, consecrating us as a holy temple, and then poured out the spirit so that God might dwell among men. Remember all that Jesus did and don't turn away from me. Now you might wonder what, what right do we have to read ourselves into verse 10, right? For the sake of your servant, Jesus, do not turn away the face of your anointed one, right? Why can we pray that prayer? Well, uh, the Apostle John tells us in 1 John that we have been anointed by God through the giving of the Spirit. So that in making us his temple, by pouring out his Spirit, Jesus also made us his anointed ones, the offspring and heirs of Jesus. And so we can pray, for Jesus' sake, do not turn my face away. Don't turn me away from you, God, for the sake of Jesus. Hear our prayers, O Lord, not because we are so wonderful, not because we have accomplished great things, but because Christ is so wonderful and he has accomplished our redemption. Hear our prayers for Jesus' sake. So if we want God's presence blessing, look to the Messiah. First, look to Messiah's faithfulness. Second, look to Messiah's promises. It is easy to get discouraged and hopeless. On the other hand, it's easy to simply believe that everything's going to turn out all right without any real basis for that belief. Sometimes we think that life is miserable and we simply have to suck it up. Or we believe that life is a fairy tale, right? We're, we're just waiting for the happy ending. And if, if pushed as to why we think uh, that happy ending will, we, will come, we say, well, just because I, I know it in my heart. Well, I, I want to say this. We, we don't need to be hopeless, but neither should we adopt an ungrounded hope. Rather, we need a hope grounded in the promises of God. And if we want to understand the blessings that God has for us, we must look to Messiah's promises. And by that, I mean God's promises to the Messiah. Someone asked me a great question this week about the promises of God. I guess I recently suggested meditating on, the, on God's promises in a sermon. And this person asked, well, how do I know which promises in the Bible are for me? And that is a genuinely important question. And there are multiple answers to it. But I want you to notice how that works out here in Psalm 132. The people of God uh, who would have sung this psalm, sung about the promises God made to David in verses 11 and 12. 
The promises were not to them, but they had implications for them. God promised David, his anointed one, his Messiah, a son on the throne, verse 12, which brings blessing to the people of God, verses 15 and 16. And this is one way, at least, in which the promises of God apply to us through God's Messiah, Jesus, right? God gave certain promises to Abraham, to Moses, to David, which apply to their descendant or successor, that is, to Jesus, the son of David, the prophet like Moses, the the child of Abraham. And then if we belong to Jesus, we receive the benefits of those promises in him. Right? God has not promised that we should sit on the throne or that one of our descendants would be king, but God has promised one of David's descendants will sit on the throne. And when we see that that descendant of David is Jesus and that he's risen and ascended to the right hand of God, and then we align ourselves with King Jesus by faith, we benefit from his reign. And so if Jesus is reigning over heaven and earth and I belong to Jesus by faith, then I can rest that my king is in control. I can rest that life will will work out in the end. I can trust that he is at work in my circumstances. The sovereign of the universe is my king and he is watching over me. I can trust things are going to work out. Why? Because God has fulfilled his promise to put a son of David on the throne forever. Now, we can actually go a step further, right, not to overcomplicate things, but but Jesus himself says this in Revelation 3, 21. He says, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And so we see God promised David that if his son was faithful, he would sit on the throne forever. Jesus, son of David, was faithful and now sits on the throne forever. Now Jesus promises us, If we are faithful, if we conquer, if we overcome by faith, if we persevere in faith and don't give up, that we too will get to sit on the throne. We will be in a place not of humiliation and oppression, but authority and glory. That's our inheritance in Jesus. That's our hope in Jesus. Now, one important thing here is to recognize that the greatest fulfillment, of course, of the promises for Jesus came after his death in his resurrection and all that flowed from that. And while we will experience uh, kind of many resurrections in this life, many blessings of God, where God blesses us and exalts us, we await the final resurrection in the life to come. The fullness of God's promises do not come in this life. They come in the life to come, not simply after death, but after resurrection, when we dwell with our Father forever in the new creation. And so if you want God's presence blessing, look to the Messiah, right? Look to the Messiah's faithfulness and look to Messiah's promises. And finally, look to Messiah's presence. When people say, uh, God has blessed me with so much, uh, their tendency is to then make a list of the stuff of this age. Let's say he has given me a family and friends, a good spouse, a good house, a good job, more than I deserve. And these are blessings of God. And we should give thanks to God for these things. Absolutely. But there is a danger here. Sometimes we look to God to make me happy with the world, right? We want God to satisfy me with the world's goods. We want God to fulfill my lusts 
right, to give me at least a little slice of worldly pleasures. And though we are looking for God to give the blessings, our heart is still set on earthly things. But what is promised in our psalm and so often celebrated in the scriptures is not mere indulgence of earthly appetites, but the presence of God himself in our midst. And so verses 13 and 14, for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. You see what David set out to do in verses two through eight was God's plan all along. And there's there's possibly a bit of wordplay here even. God says in verse 12 that David's descendant would sit on his throne. And then in verses 13 to 14, uh, the, the psalmist uses the same root to talk about his God's dwelling place and the place that he would dwell. In other words, uh, you, you could say Psalm 132 verses 13 and 14 like this, for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his seat. This is my resting place forever. Here I will sit for I have desired it. Uh, so God is going to seat one of David's descendants on the throne and he himself will take up his seat God himself will take up his seat in Zion. Now, of course, we know, right? We know now on this side of the cross and the resurrection that those are actually not two different things. Uh, Jesus is both God and man. And by sitting on God's throne, the son of David and God himself has taken his seat. By pouring out the spirit from the throne of God in heaven, Jesus has taken up his seat in the church, his people, the new covenant temple. Now, the real value here for God's people, the real benefit, the real blessing, if I can talk about it like this, right? The real value is not material goods, but the presence of God in the midst of his people, Emmanuel, God with us. And yet, even in this psalm, God's presence overflows into other blessings. Verses 15 and 16. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints with shouts will shout for joy. God's presence overflows with God's pleasant presence in Zion, in Jerusalem, overflows with blessing to the people of Zion. Now, this, by the way, is where Calvin talks about God's people being safe and happy uh, in verse 16. Safe because God has clothed them with salvation, saved them from their enemies, happy because God has caused them to shout for joy. He has given us a reason to rejoice through our deliverance from our enemies and our renewed communion with him by his presence in our midst. Jesus has saved us from our enemies of Satan and sin and death by his death on the cross for our sins. He has taken up residence in our hearts by the gift of the Holy Spirit. God the Father has caused Jesus to be victorious in his resurrection. He caused his horn to sprout and he will continue to be victorious until the gospel reaches every tongue, tribe, and nation under heaven. And Jesus returns to bring peace forever. God the Father has prepared a lamp for David in his son Jesus and and a lamp for Jesus in the church. We are the light of the world, Jesus says. We shine brightly for Jesus in the world that his name, his glory would not be extinguished. And while Jesus' enemies will be put to shame on the last day, his crown will shine like the sun. Whatever the good news of forgiveness, uh, wherever the good news of forgiveness in his name is proclaimed, Jesus' glory will shine. 
Jesus is the great blessing of God for his people. Right? He, he brings with him innumerable other bless, blessings, of course, right? forgiveness, right standing with the Father, the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, power to live a new life, a, a loving community in the church, God's daily fatherly care and provision, the hope of the resurrection. And we can hope for these things and wait on these things, but we must keep our eyes on him. If you want God's presence blessing, look to the Messiah. Look to Messiah's faithfulness. Look to Messiah's promises. Look to Messiah's presence. Know that in Jesus, God will not turn you away. Know that in Jesus, God has already been faithful and will remain faithful to all who are in Jesus. And know that in Jesus, God is with us and will bless us both now and in fullness in the age to come. Let's pray. Our Father, help us uh, to look to you. Help us to look to your Son, Jesus, great David's greater Son, our Messiah, our Anointed One, the one who has received the fullnesses, uh, a fullness of your promises in his resurrection and ascension and uh, being seated at your right hand in power and glory, and the one who has poured out your presence on the church that you might be with us and in us that we might receive the blessing of God dwelling in our midst. Help us to uh, rejoice in that, to delight in that, and to serve you in light of it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.